Um, Second Peter, uh, chapter one. It's bizarre that it starts by saying Simon Peter, and then you read the commentaries, and everybody wants to argue about who wrote it. You know, it's really it's it's weird. Um, you know, in that uh, I find an arrogance um, of the. Uh, modern scholars who all think that they know better. Um, you know, the church uh, has historically spent a lot of time um, coming to the conclusions about what books we should be studying. And, uh, you know, this this idea that, um, you know, uh, the people today know better than the church uh, previous to us. The things that needed to be sort, sorted out have been sorted out. There was a need for the Protestant Reformation. There were th things that needed to leave the church once we began to read the Word of God. Uh, but uh, Peter wrote First uh, and Second Peter, and uh, you know, whenever somebody wants to begin that argument with me, I, I have very little patience for that. I just, you know, if if you want to uh, sit around and debate that endlessly, I suppose. You're welcome uh, to do that. But uh, the church uh, firmly established. We, we talk about the canonized word of God. And uh, a lot of times people uh, think of that as like, uh, you know, the approved scripture. And, and to that degree it is. But it, it wasn't that they sat around and took a vote on these books. Like, you know, who, who wants to approve Genesis? All in favor, say, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it didn't work like that. Uh, the the church uh, collectively was reading certain books and forsaking other writings and abandoning them, coming to the conclusion one of two things. Either it was not scripture or two, that it wasn't necessary or profitable to the body of Christ to read and study from those books. And so in that, they gave approval in what books they read. They would read some books and not read others. And that's what the word canon means. Read. The books that were read by the church. That's that's all that it means. Is that These are the books that the church read. And there are many books that the church did not read that, that uh, even have wisdom and even have helpful things in them. But the church understood this is not the word of God. Uh, you know, First and Second Peter were two of the books that the church read and, and kept as epistles, and even bound them together. Right, L literally went through the process of having them handwritten and then binding them together as a single book. The sixty-six books we have today, uh, you know, you say, oh well, some of the stuff in the Apocrypha and the Book of Maccabees, very helpful. Right? And you should read those in the books of wisdom, right? Absolutely. You should read those things. But what belongs in your Bible is in your Bible. And First and Second Peter are two of those books. So uh, with that, uh, Peter's first epistle was probably written, probably written uh, 62 to 64 A.D., somewhere in there. Um, his second epistle... Uh, was uh, this that we're about to read, uh, written shortly before his death, uh, which uh, occurred in A.D. 68. So, um, you know, how close? Well, again, everybody then wants to, who cares? Okay, it was written by Peter, and you hear within the, the writings as he's talking about how close he is to the finish and how these things are, are staying and sticking in his mind. Look, if, if you're a man of substance such as Peter, and I mean spiritual substance, and you're nearing your death, and you're writing the things that are contained in this epistle, it's way worth our time to read and study and know, really, really tear these things apart. There are a handful of things in here <clears throat> that the language... And I do mean like the Greek language is very specific about. And, and parsing out those things is very important for us. 
If we don't search through and find them, then uh, we can be left with a, a much simpler uh, cr uh, English understanding of what we might read. And uh, also uh, within that, our doctrine might not be anywhere near as accurate. The Greek language really does a lot uh, for us here in Second uh, Peter. So uh, we could go through a number of other issues regarding this book and how important it is and the historicity, but let's dive right into Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. As we said, Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, probably if I wrote this, I'd make sure that apostle was written first, you know, make sure everybody knows who I am and what my title is and, you know, Peter makes sure that the people that are reading understand that he's a bond servant first of Jesus Christ. And again, uh, that concept, uh, you know, we're all to be servants, uh, but bond servants a pretty detailed, uh, you know, understanding in that that individual has given their life to their master for the remainder of their life. And, uh, it was often uh, through choice. Sometimes they were compelled to do that uh, because of their circumstances, but very often their need was that great and their master was that good. They would go and say, I want to serve you for the rest of my life. I want you to care for me for the rest of my life. The master would take them to the main entrance of the home and he would stretch their earlobe over the doorpost of the house and place an awl upon their earlobe and drive the awl through their earlobe, nailing them to the house. They would take the awl out and replace it with a golden earring. Uh, over time, what we've come to understand is that the golden earring symbolized slavery, like a link of a chain, that they were bound to that home that they forever belonged to that home. They were, they were chained to, bound to one master, one household. And what's most significant about that is <clears throat> it was their ear that was attached to that master and to that household, that they would hear the words and seemingly obey, that what the master said to them, they were obedient to, that they would follow uh, those commands. So it's a remarkable picture, right? Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17, you know, the things we must hear, the things that enter our, that hold our ear. We'll say that to people in an English sort of indirect way. We'll say, are you, are you listening? You know what I'm saying? Well, you, well, if you've raised kids, you've said that a few times, right? You know, look into my eyes, listen to what I'm saying. You want that assurance that you're paying attention to what I'm delivering to you so that even if you don't follow it, you and I both have the understanding right now that the message has come out of my lips and into your ear, that, that you've taken it in. And that's the symbol that is there with the bond servant, eternally for the remainder of their life bound to one household, one master, that they would hear his commands and obey them. Here, as I said, you know, I might, if I had been chosen by Jesus and appointed as an apostle, I know my character. I, I might have said something to the nature of, you know, just I'm, I am an apostle, you know. Yeah. I'm not a B apostle, I'm an A apostle, you know what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm first rate. So make sure people, you know, get a glimpse of my badge somewhere along the way, something so that people have that idea of my credentials. Uh, Peter puts that out, but he makes sure that the front end of the thing is bondservant. Uh, you know, let's be clear that, that, that I have a master. His name is Jesus. I follow him and I obey him. I'm bound to his household forever. Now, honestly, right, at birth, we're all bound to a master. He's a wicked and cruel master. And it is in finding Jesus that we discover freedom. People say, oh, well, you know, you're trying to make me do something I don't want to do. I'm free to do whatever I want. No, you're really not. 
Your sin compels you every single day. You have no freedom. You are bound to the mastery. You, you don't want to recognize Lucifer. You don't want to recognize the spiritual realm. Fine. How about your flesh and its wicked appetites? You know, your your flesh compels you to do things. Makes you, how many times, right, before we knew the Lord, did we end a day saying, I will never do this again. And when you wake up in the morning, it's your very first thought. And if you resisted for a few hours, you were doing well. Most of the time, it was somewhere inside that first hour that we failed and we returned and we obeyed that master. You know, Bob Dylan had a brief, brief brush with Christianity and he wrote, uh, you know, you're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve. He was actually quoting Paul from Romans chapter 6, where Paul in Romans 6.16 uh, said, um, be not deceived, uh, who you obey, that is your master. Whether it be sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. And I would say to us all this evening, don't be deceived. right? Because we can do that. We can say, Jesus is my master, and then we obey our flesh. And so, hey, you know, then you have to also, you know, do the calculation and recognize that if I obey my flesh, then the real question is, is Jesus my Lord? Is he my savior? Because if he's my savior, he's supposed to be my master and I'm supposed to be obedient to him. So if I'm disobedient, then the real question is, is he my master? Is he my Lord? Is, is he my savior? And Peter puts that forward as we move on. Then he says, uh, continuing in verse 1, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a couple of things to begin here. Um, that those who have obtained like precious faith is very broad in its spectrum. Not in the idea of it encompasses other faiths. It's broad in its time span. So that includes us. As we sit here, right, we share the same faith. You say, maybe you say, well, of course. Well, there are those that imply that, no, like we're missing something. We need to, like, go back and reinstitute, you know, old things or, you know, something of that nature. The, the doctrine which is necessary is still retained by the church, and we still hold uh, to those things, right? We don't need incense, candles, and robes, you know, in order to be closer to the Lord. The faith that we share is the same faith that Peter had. Uh, we, we are holding to uh, this thing. It's the same faith. And, and here's this burly fisherman, uh, and I do mean burly. Church history tells us that there are certain legends, but there are certain things which are recorded historically that uh, we assume to be very true. We have several accounts of Peter. Okay? And burly, white-headed, white-bearded fishermen would be very accurate according to everything we've been able to retain. Uh, some accounts actually state very emphatically that he was literally head and shoulders taller than everyone else, uh, including Jesus. That the, the, the tallest of all the other apostles only came to his shoulder. So he was, he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Big, burly, thick-fingered, thick-chested uh, fishermen. Uh, you know, we have a couple of evidences uh, one, Garden of Gethsemane, right? Yank out the sword, start hacking away. There's there's 600 Roman soldiers present. You've got to have a certain mindset that's probably somewhat unstable, you know what I'm saying, to, to do such things. Um, <clears throat> you have John 21 as he's being restored, where he jumps in the water, swims ashore. They come in later and they try to bring the nets in and they're unable to, right? A group of men can't pull the nets ashore. Peter, I'm, you know, 
extrapolating, but basically says, get out of the way, grabs a hold of the net, brings the whole thing ashore himself, right? And then they total up the fish, and it's supposed to be the mindset of, can you believe that Peter did that on his own? He's a huge guy, okay? He uses a term like precious. It's interesting, right? That the old burly fisherman who was ready to wade into a cluster of Roman soldiers, who each one of them was capable of delivering death to anybody that stepped inside their 12-foot circle. They were trained very specifically to hold the shield tight against their body, their short 18-inch sword, plant one of their feet in one place like a basketball player, and they would defend that circle without moving. Anything that came inside it, they would kill it. There's 600 of them that come with the temple guard to arrest Jesus. It specifically says a Roman cohort. There's 600, you know, what, Navy SEALs present. And Peter rips out his sword, starts swinging and taking people's body parts off. Uh, You know, here and now he's talking about our precious faith. And he uses the word precious repeatedly. he's, He's demonstrating to us the tenderness and the softness that Christ has created in his heart. He's he's a great example to us. So to those who obtain like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Some of our translations throw commas in and you know change wording in such a way that you're left not seeing the clarity of what the Greek gives us. Right, uh, the the Granville Sharp rule makes God and Jesus one and the same. Right? This faith was given to us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is that is one in the same. There is no way to interpret that any other way. You know, for the people that struggle with whether is is Jesus God or is he the Son of God? Yes. He is God and the Son of God. He is one and the same. And the Greek language tells us emphatically that that is what's going on, uh, that, that, that God and Jesus are one and the same. So for you know, Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, or Joseph Smith, you know, founder of the Mormons, or you know, if you run into people that are into oneism or Jesus only movement or any number of different things, modalism, you know, God takes on different modes. Uh, all of those different belief systems don't line up with the Word of God. The Word of God emphatically tells us that Jesus is God, one and the same. So, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, now look, <clears throat> we all want grace and peace added to us, right? For all the other junk we've got going on in life, right? Anxiety, confusion, struggle. You fill in the rest of the list, okay? Uh, We want grace and peace added. Uh, Here, it's multiplied. I really like that. And it's exactly what it means according to the Greek language. Not just that you'd turn around and you'd have confusion and struggle and difficulty, and I've also got grace and I've also got peace. No, it's the idea of grace and peace are going to multiply to the point where it it pushes everything else out. Uh, That's a beautiful picture. Uh, The the, the need. Think, Think about the chaos of the world around us. You know, go go through the list of, you know, what Black Lives Matters, you know, election, uh, Ukraine, uh, COVID, uh, gas prices. Uh, you know, I don't know where. Where do you want to begin? Where do you want to end in your life? And, and the anxiety and the difficulty that that will bring to your heart and your mind. Oh, but then when you just pour grace into that. And I do mean the unmeasured grace of God. It just floods in and washes everything out. You get the sense of, right, oh, right, I can, I can go to the Lord with anything. You know, I can hear what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi about be anxious for nothing, 
but in everything, through prayer and supplication, uh, you know, with thanksgiving, make your requests made known to God, and the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we understand, I have full access to the throne of God. You know, I don't have to. I don't have to go find my pastor. I don't have to go find you know uh, that guru on a hilltop or that you know uh, nun in the convent or that priest in his you know temple. I, I can go straight into the throne room of God and experience the outpouring of God's grace, and it washes all the garbage out of my life and settles my heart in peace. Well, how does it do that? Well, I don't really care. And I don't really know. All I know is I have this promise right here. And that's another thing about Peter's writing is, is the promise and the promise and the promise. They just keep coming. You know, he, he gives us assurances, right? I, I'm always bugged uh, when somebody claims to be a prophet and then they give their statement and it's conditional, you know, if, you know, if this will, then God will that. Well, what about the fact that God just does, right? That, that I can trust him, that, that he will give us his grace, that he will give us his peace. Now, another thing about Peter's declaration here, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, the Granville Sharp rule, one and the same, God and Jesus, our Lord, one and the same. This knowledge, interestingly enough, there are many different terms in the scripture for knowledge. Okay, This knowledge is experiential. Okay, um, you, You've maybe uh, been through different classes or learning, and you come to understand the particular formula that they're using, and you can use it. But in the end, you don't really understand why it works, right? That, that's not what he's saying here. This is the sense of your relationship with God can be experiential in a way that you can now, now you can say of your faith, I trust God because I know I've had past experience and I know, I, I know what he's going to do. I know his character. This isn't, I read it in the Bible and, uh, you know, my pastor told me to believe it, so I'm, I'm hanging on to that. You know, maybe that was the first round, okay, with you and maybe even with Peter. I, I read it, I heard it, I was told, but then I experienced it. And now I know. I know experientially. You know, there are a number of things for Peter that this works in, right? I mean, walk on water, right? That's crazy that you'd walk on water. And Peter would be like, I know, and I still can't do it. But I know I did it. You know what I'm saying? Tried several times. Just get really wet. You know? But I did it. Christ carried me through these things. You know? I, I had an overwhelming amount of regret as I saw Malchus's ear flying through the air, land in the grass. And then Jesus picked it up and put it back on Malchus's head. I know he can repair things that I've destroyed. I know he can repair people's ability to listen to me that I've destroyed. You know, things I've done with my behavior and my testimony that I think, oh, I'm never going to be able to win their heart over. And I would say to you, you're right. You probably never will. But Jesus, the one you serve, can repair the damage you've done. P Peter has a whole list of things that he's talking about here that are that experiential knowledge. Okay, you know, when we're reading Hebrews and we're hearing, right, uh, faith is you know, the substance of things hoped for. We get that sense like it's just, you just got to believe, man. That's not what Hebrews is telling us at all. Hebrews is telling us 
you have experiential knowledge that should convince your heart these things are true and you can trust them. That's the substance of things hoped for. I've seen people come to Christ that I said a long time ago, they will never come to the Lord. Why? Because I have argued with them incessantly and I could not convince them. And then they come to the Lord. And because of my pride-filled arrogance, I say something along the way like, uh, which one of my arguments brought you to the faith? And they're like, did we ever talk about the Lord? You know what I'm saying? I'm all offended. Like, what? I talk to you endlessly about the I don't even remember that. You know, and then I was, you know, they were reading some dumb book that I don't even care for the author, you know, and they surrendered their life to Christ. And you're like, wow, this can't, it can't even be. I'm pretty sure that author's not even a Christian. You know what I'm saying? Just they came to know the Lord through it. It's crazy. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's working in their life. Yes, the Holy Spirit was inspiring me and giving me that strong urge and insistence to try and lead them to the Lord. But in the end, it's the Lord's responsibility, not mine. And so, you know, in this, we have experiences. So the next time you come to it and you're arguing with that person and you come to the realization of all I'm doing here is damaging this relationship, you stop and you say, look, the Lord convinced me, and I've seen him convince others, and I think he's going to convince you. I think that's what I'm hearing from the Lord right now. And you leave it. You leave it in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And then they come to the Lord, and it's so much more gratifying when it doesn't have to have any of my pride-filled junk mixed in with it. The Lord's work, this experiential knowledge, right, the, the, the substance of our faith, the substance of the things hoped Four, is the idea of I have experienced the Lord and I, I can hope in him that he's going to fulfill these things, that he's going to accomplish these things. So grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then verse three, so significant, you guys, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Look, before we move on, I would ask you, what else is there? Life and godliness. What, what else? What else could we? And, and you're going like, oh, nothing. <laughs> but then I talk to people, and uh, you know, then you mention like addiction, and they're like, oh, well, yeah, there's that. Well, wait a minute, uh, that fits inside life, and it has a lot to do with godliness. Because here's my point. They say, well, you know, God and the Bible and faith in Jesus, that's all good for, you know, like lots of things. But, you know, when it comes to my depression, th then I also need like psychology and medication and fill in the blank. No, Jesus Christ is capable in those settings, Right. You know, if you could look in my medicine cabinet, there's no more Zoloft from years ago. There are many things that aren't present in my life that Christ has delivered me from. You know, that which you need is found in Jesus Christ. If, if you're saying it all right now in your heart, well, I mean, maybe for you then I say to you, the experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ is just out of your grasp. Continue to reach, right? Ask, knock, seek, and he will answer and open and provide. He's there. He, he, he is waiting and longing to do these things. I, I'm very, very grieved. Look, if the world doesn't know this, fine. Right? How are they ever going to know this? I'm really grieved with the way the church rejects this. I don't, I don't mean doesn't know it. I mean, okay, they don't know it. Fine. They, they haven't. But, but when they read it and hear it and understand it and then go, no, I refuse to accept that. Is, is Christ the answer or not? 
Is this what you need? Is a relationship with him what's going to fulfill you or not? Okay, there's an excellent book in regard to this uh, called A Banquet in the Grave. And it, it gives great explanation to the way that the church has redefined all of these things. You know, make sure that you don't uh, just automatically reject the fact that, that everything you need. I read it again. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And there it is again. Through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. And that's again that experiential knowledge. That that's how you're going to know him. Hey, brother, if that's cold on you, you can close that window. So yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um it was seventy eight degrees when I came into this room. So we're just still controlling it by, you know, making big holes in the wall. So uh, open the window. Um, so, so just to get us back on track here again, his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. There's that word again, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption and, and, you know, there in that word, that decay, that rot that is in the world through lust. So the divine nature that has been given to us, imparted to us, it certainly envelops the idea of miracles, okay, and, and the supernatural. But in this case, it has more to do with the idea of you have a nature that was given to you by Adam and Eve. You came into this world in a natural sense. Sin, right? He, he talks about the corruption and the lusts of this world. And that, that lust we shouldn't think of as only being the sexual. It, it, it is that which the flesh would desire. Okay? So, so anything that our flesh wants to pursue and in that experiences decomposition, rot, decay, deterioration, falling apart. Um, you know, that, that, uh, that, that can simply be neglect and, and uh, natural deterioration. Uh, you know, that, that which was good and solid and strong has become weakened and, and, uh, you know, is in decay is the sense of things. So we had a natural existence, and then his spirit gave us a divine nature, which caused us to escape the, the rot, the corruption, the decay, which is so natural in this world. This, this is very much um, uh, you know, an, a, a, a recounting of the conversation that goes on between uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and Jesus, right? Uh, read that again when you get to time as Jesus asks Nicodemus, are you the ruler of the Jews? That, that is a, a title, right? Definite article, the. He was of the rulers of the Jews and his role, according to history, several different examples tell us that he was over all of them, when they were looking for those final answers. And here's a group that has one opinion, you know, amongst the leaders of the Jews. Here's another group that has, you know, an opinion. And they would come to Nicodemus and say, settle this for us. And there Nicodemus would give them, you know, whatever his thought and insight was. He was the, and Jesus is saying, are you the ruler of the Jews? And you don't understand these spiritual things? Uh, you know, maybe my emphasis is too strong, but the sense that he's saying, you're, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. And, and Nicodemus is saying, well, what are we talking about? Are, is this some kind of reincarnation? Are you like, are we talking like I, I get born one more time? I, I enter into my mother's womb. I come back into this world or, you know, 
I what? I depart from this world and I enter into you know another mother's womb and enter this. What do you mean born again? And Jesus explains to him, it's the spiritual sense of things, right? I'm obviously paraphrasing you know, as he goes on and says, look, you see how the wind moves things, but you don't understand the wind. Even, even today, right? You know, the scientists are like, well, no, we understand the wind a lot better. You know, the energy that, you know, disperses the molecular structure and, you know, certain things move faster and they rise and heat. and, and No, you really don't understand. For the detail that you do understand, you don't really understand how these things are generated, where they come from, where they go. It's beyond, right? We, we have a greater degree of observation and thereby a greater degree of understanding, but we don't truly have the understanding as though we were the creator. And I, I was listening to a debate two nights ago, and the atheist said, see, that's what I'm saying. The no more we know about science, the less we need God. And I thought, well, that's an honest summary of what so many people think without ever voicing it. You know, they, 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 they might not ever say, I'm an atheist. But in their heart and in their mind, what they are saying is, you know, uh, the more that I understand science, I trust in that more than I do the existence of God. Jesus is saying, look, you have a nature that you were born with that you cannot rebel against. You know, some of us, have a far more radical, sinful nature and behavior. And we think of us as so much worse, right? You know, you know, some people don't understand, like addiction, you know, the root of that is adoration, okay? So adoration for God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? I look at addicts and I think, oh, there's a hardcore Christian in there. We need to get out. There, there's somebody that is radical, that loves the Lord in such a way that I just I need to get that on the right rails. Right? What we're looking at is a worship disorder. They, they, they've come to adore the wrong thing, and that adoration expressed as addiction right, is destroying them. We get that focused on Jesus Christ and they could take over the world. Who knows? You know what I'm saying? Let, let's put this in the right place. Here, this, this nature that we have, you know, needs be replaced by the divine nature. You know, the born again experience. That's, that's not something Christians invented. You know, born again Christian. That, Jesus gave us that phrase saying you must be born again. Your nature must be changed. Your sinful nature. Uh, you came into this world with certain attributes and they were all bent in the wrong direction. And they need to be fixed upon Christ. And as you do that, as you find your satisfaction in the Lord, then these things you know, cause us to escape the corruption, the rot, the decay, the deterioration uh, that comes through the world. Now, in verse 5, he says, But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add your faith virtue. Now, we're going to go through a list of things, and you can, you can actually begin in this list and let one progress into the other, but you can also start anywhere in the list you want to and move outward. Right. It's not like, OK, I got to start with one, you know, diligence and then I got to, you know, begin with faith and then I'll add to that virtue. Well, look, uh, let's just go through this and understand uh, that this can all work in many different directions in many different ways. First of which is faith is the root of the thing and diligence is required. A lot of people approach faith. Uh, as though it were a magical force. Just, you know, like like I tried out Christianity, you know, and it didn't do anything for me. 
and and what I'm, I guess that was a mocking tone. I didn't intend that. I just, you know, what I hear from people that are saying that is they were expecting God to wave his magic wand over them. They recognized the wrong. They recognized the need for change. And they raised their hand or whatever and said, I want to be a Christian and please change me. And it didn't happen. You know, they ran out the door and charged into life thinking, hooray, have been set free and changed and fell flat on their face and went, well, that didn't work. Okay. Look, you, you got to have a diligence in this yourself. There must be a determination, right? We've all seen certain people on the job who you're thinking like, this person is putting more effort into looking like they're working than they're actually working, right? It just, I, I had, uh, <clears throat> I worked for uh, Crimson King Tree Service years ago, Bill Spaulding, he's a Bostonian, and uh, came up to Maine and started this tree company and was at it for a long time. And uh, Ted Tracy, worked with us and um, uh, the day that I met Ted uh, he was he 60 68 years old he was driving his 10 speed home and uh, Ken Graves and I are doing a tree job and he stops and he starts talking to us and uh, you know I I've never met Ted before so I quickly learn that he's driving his 10 speed because he just went to the store and got a 12-pack, and uh, he's on the 10-speed because he, he can never again have his license in the state of Maine and, and from OUI. And, and he, he says to me, I'm a five-star general. <laughs> Been arrested five times for OUI. And uh, 40 years plus in, in the tree service, and the guy was incredible. His skills in tree work were like second to none. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, he could pull up on a job and in half a second know what portion of the job was going to be more work, right? If you climbed, sometimes that was a lot of work. Um, uh, other times, if you stayed on the ground, there was more work to do on the ground than climbing. Uh, Ted would pull into a job and look up and go, I'll climb this one because he understood there was less work, you know, in the air. Or, you know, I'll do the groundwork. You climb. You know, he just like instant, and you quickly learn this man knows what he's doing, right? <clears throat> so uh, we're working on a job site one day, and uh, I'm standing next to uh, my boss, uh, Bill Spaulding, and, you know, I've just brought big logs over, thrown them up in the truck, and Bill says, hey, look at that right there. I turned around and looked. He said, that, son, is what you call a professional malingerer. And it was Ted over there with a rake looking very diligent like he was doing a ton of work. He's doing absolutely nothing. And I watched him, and he, he stayed in that one little area for like 15 more minutes and accomplished zero. Diligence, right? We, busy work is not part of Christianity. We, we must be diligent about these things. The, the things we're about to read about, you've got to attack this. So, so as, as much as we think, like, I wish God would just wave his magic wand over my whole life, over my person, make me something different. The Lord is saying to you, I'm lending you everything I can from my nature, through my spirit, to you. But you've got to pick up your end. You've got to go to work. You've got to do this yourself also, right? He doesn't abandon us to ourself. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to just tell you what's required of you, and I'll be right over here. You get your act together, I'll let you in. He gives us the things we need, but we must also work, right? We must also respond to what it is that he's giving. Giving all diligence, add to your faith, Virtue. And that's the idea of superior moral conduct. That's literally what it means. Okay. And that's got various uh, definitions, right? I mean, if you're in certain environments, it's not even hard to do, right? 
<laughs> you know, I mean, if you're hanging out with all your biker friends, it's probably not hard to have superior moral conduct, right? You know what I'm saying? <sighs> At times, if everyone around you is, you know, a hardened criminal, foul-mouthed, pirate working on anyway so you know um you you have to understand that what the lord is calling us to is his standard okay so that 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 virtue that he's calling us to is his virtue the superior moral conduct is his superior moral conduct i i say that not to discourage you i say it to encourage you right because we might be like Hey, we've all decided what superior moral conduct is, and we've all signed this document, and we've you know shaken hands on it, and we think that we're all just fine, <laughs> you know, and, and that's not the standard. It's it's Christ's standard, okay? So so that 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 high moral standard that He's uh, called us to and, and wants us to walk in, and then. To virtue, knowledge, and and that's the experiential knowledge, right? So, so it, it's the sense of yes, study, yes, learn, yes, grow, but then also look for those things to be accomplished in your life. Like, yeah, I've always read about this, but now look, here it is happening in my life. I'm having to wait upon the Lord. I'm having to pray. I'm having to trust, and now I'm seeing it take place in my faith. Moral conduct, experiential knowledge needs to be part of that. To knowledge, self-control. See see why it's not just the magic wand, right? Self-control. People very often miss that, right? Fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Oh, I want all those things. Kindness, gentleness, self-control. Controlling myself. I can't help it. I'm Irish. That's why I punch people in the face. You know, laziness is what we're looking at there, right? That that's blaming my heritage, literally, my genealogy. Yeah, it's interesting. I hear people do that a lot. John and I were just talking about it in passing tonight. I, you know, people are like, "Oh, you know, I just." Uh, really emotional, I'm Cuban, you know, or whatever. I'm just throwing stuff around like I know what I'm talking about. Uh, You know, I've talked to several friends lately that have gone through these genealogy checks where you you send in your DNA test and get it back, and they're astonished. They're astonished, right? Our family is German. That's why I'm so organized, you know, and they get the test back, and they're like, 3% 3% German. You know, I, I have a young friend that's black as black and sent away the test, got it back. He's less than 15% African, right? Most of his genealogy is Northern European. Northern European, like, like blonde hair, blue eye, white Scandinavian, Northern European. Most of his DNA. You know, I lose my mind and flip out because I'm whatever genealogy. Really? Are you sure that you are? You might be surprised. Maybe you're entirely, you know, Japanese. I don't know what what you are. I think that what we're doing is, you know, what the Lord rebuked the nation of Israel for and said that they were not allowed to use this statement anymore. When they said the fathers have eaten sour grapes And therefore, the children's teeth are set on edge. And it's that idea of when you eat something very sour, and then you're like, you know, that that whole caves your head in, sour thing. The fathers have eaten that which is sour, and the children now behave. The apple has not fallen far from the tree. You know, all of my family are drunkards. You know, we've all been horse thieves. We've all, you know, whatever. And you blame your misconduct on somebody else, and then you find out you were adopted. You know, it's <laughs> just like, oh wow, I um, I, I had no idea. You know, I've been a jerk all my life, and I actually came from you know, a long line of priests, or I don't know what. You know, what I'm saying, you're responsible. 
for your conduct. Self-control. This is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You don't get to blame anybody else. Right? You're not going to stand in front of Jesus Christ and say, well, you know, my dad. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, no, go ahead. You know. Right? We, we do that with one another. Why? Because if, if you tell me you came from a long list of pirates, well, then I, I want you to approve of me. And my failures. I approve of you, you approve of me, and we'll get along. Our shortcomings. That's not, Jesus condemned that, didn't he? When he said, you approve yourselves by yourself as you measure yourselves amongst yourselves. The standard is Christ. Not, not just because, right, he said, I'm the model. He's saying, I gave you my nature. I sent my spirit upon you. You don't, you don't have Adam's nature only. You have the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. That according to Romans 6, which we've already quoted tonight, right, raised Christ from the dead, raised us to a newness of life. That Spirit has been given to us. So, yes, you've got to be very diligent. What also, also means at times you're going to have to say, oh, I want to do this bad thing. Like nobody's business. <coughs> but it's not Christ's nature. <coughs> Excuse me. Hopefully you bailed me out. <coughs> so <coughs> within this, right, partakers of his divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason giving all diligence, <coughs> add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, right? <clears throat> self-control that has stick to Yeah, that's very important, right? right? Because we'll be like, uh, they pushed all my buttons and I, I didn't punch them in the faith, you know, so therefore I did good. And then the next time you see them, they push your button and you punch them square in the face. <clears throat> Perseverance. <clears throat> Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Kindness, gentleness, self-control. Long-suffering with kindness. We tend to do that thing where we're kind. We're kind. We're kind. We lose our mind. And then act like I was kind for four and a half hours. And it just you, you gotta add to the perseverance, the stick to itiveness, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness. Well devoted is the term. Well devoted. Now we use the term devotion, right? I get up this morning, had my devotions. Okay, wonderful. Are, are you living a devoted life? You got up early. You spent time in the word. Uh, you were alone with God. You prayed. You did wonderful spiritual things. Did you carry that through the day? Were you devoted to the Lord? Okay, right? Devotion of husband and wife, right? If you get up and spend time with your spouse... And you have that time and you call that devotion. But then you leave and you forsake that relationship. No spouse is going to tolerate that. Right? Devotion is just that. Well devoted is what the Lord has called us to. We need to be well devoted. Godliness is that idea. And then he says brotherly kindness. Now look, that's sacrificial love. That's the term used there, sacrificial love. I'll remind us, Jesus said, John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, as I have loved you. See, that's the new portion of the command. Not just that you love one another, but that you love in the way I have loved. 
according to my definition, according to my behavior, that you also love one another. Verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? Don't mistake it. Right? Uh, who is my neighbor? Remember that question? Yeah, my brother? Well, I'm good to Christians because I like them. You know, but those filthy, rotten heathens, I just, you know, cut me off in traffic. I got terrible things to say about them. I got terrible things to do to them. Uh, the Lord hasn't called us to that, right? The good Samaritan is where that question came up. You know, you got to go back through the history of the Samaritans, right? Uh, 586 B.C. as uh, the nation is taken away into captivity and the Assyrians have developed what is really a brilliant plan as far as conquering nations go. So you've conquered all these people, right? Because they don't just slaughter the people. They want them as their slaves. So what they do is they shuffle the deck. They take a large group from this country and they put them down here in this country and they take a large group from that country and they put them over there in that country and they shuffle everybody all around so that in each one of the countries they now have occupancy. There's a, a mixture. They, they've got to overcome language barriers. They just It's difficult for them. So there's like insurrections almost impossible. They can't rise up against Assyria and overthrow them. They're like, no, we've put you all together, and it doesn't matter if you speak the same language. That taskmaster is going to throttle you if you don't do what we said. So in the process of shuffling the deck, there's now a, a large group of people in Israel that aren't Israeli. And there's a whole bunch of people that come out of the woodwork who are Israeli, right? That were uh, the off-scouring is the idea. They were... Uh, the lame and the decrepit and the sick and those that Assyria basically said, nah, we don't even want them. <laughs> you know, they've run off into the woods over there and they're hiding and Assyria was like, who cares, right? Leave them there. They're not useful. They're not skilled. We don't care. They're uneducated. They're ill-equipped. Leave them. They come out, they form a group of people and there's actually a strange thing that goes on as the animals begin to attack and they send messengers to the Assyrian king and they say uh, we must have offended the God of this nation uh, could you please send us a priest to teach us how to worship the God of this nation and they actually send priests back to Israel and and they teach the people but the people are a mixed race of people and they're intermarrying now and so they become the nation of the Samaritans so that when Israel returns from captivity and they all show up when Ezra's building the temple, like, we'll help. And Ezra's like, no, you're not. Because <clears throat> we're looking for Israelis. You're not of us. So they're very much rejected by every portion of what surrounds them. And who is the first person that Jesus Christ reveals his being the Christ to? A Samaritan woman at the well, right? His great love for them. You know, brotherly love, you guys. Let's make sure we're not just looking for brothers to love. It needs to be that we have and we exude and we are brotherly love. There's a world outside our walls that needs us to love them as Christ loved us. Right? Like he loved the Samaritan woman at the well. Right? And what? how does that story go? Right? No, uh, we're going to take a detour. We're, or rather, we're not going to take the long detour around. We're going to go straight through Samaria. Why? Because I have an appointment is basically what Jesus says. With an adulterous woman at the well, who is a Samaritan, the offscouring of the offscouring of the offscouring. I have an appointment with her. And he confesses to her. It's the first time the confession is made, and it's the first time Jesus makes the confession I am the Christ. 
When the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. I who speak to you am he. Remarkable. Remarkable. Consider, consider, I have to look at my own heart and think, how much do I reject the world in need around me? Right, right. So when so when we're reading, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Who's the one another? Right? Are they not all going to hell like we were? Are they not in need of love, Christ's love, as I was, as you are? Paul raises the question at this point in the doctrine by saying, "Do you despise the grace of God?" <laughs> I mean, you like it for yourself, but when you have to hand it out to others, do you despise the grace of God? The answer needs to be no. I love the grace of God. I love imparting the grace of God to others. I want to. So, <clears throat> to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in knowledge. And it's that experiential knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if you have these things and you have them in abundance, <clears throat> there's no way you're going to be unfruitful. There's just no way. Do we not say that at times? I've gotten very dry. I'm very stale. Just I feel, I feel like my relationship with the Lord is so cold. Really? Right? Have we ever looked back to these passages and questioned ourselves? Right? Because so very often what we're saying in that, listen, so very often what we're saying in that is, is that somehow God has dropped the ball. I don't feel his presence anymore. I, I can't tell. <laughs> like he's changed. Right, the prophet said, "You know, is God's arm short that He cannot reach? Is His ear thick or dense or full? Is the sense that He can't hear you? No, no, it is your it is your iniquity that has separated you from the Lord. We we've pulled back. You know, there's this uh, statement." that was made, and I still haven't been able to find who the origin of it was, but it was, uh, you don't need to go into the ministry. Some people think along those lines, right? He said, you don't need to go into the ministry, you need the ministry to go into you. You need this to enter your life, your heart and your mind, your state of existence. It's, it's a remarkable thing. I'll just... Get us because the 10 and 11 are added, but it would take too much time. I'll give it nine. For he who lacks these things. So, so that list that uh, we've been given of, you know, diligence, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly, kindness. Uh, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. I want to point out two things in the positive, right? Because it can feel very negative, right? Uh, like sometimes all we hear in that is, you're short-sighted. <laughs> and that can be painful, right? The two things are, you've forgotten, right? And we do that, do we not? We're so weak. Someone periodically has to say to us, hey, I think you've forgotten, right? Which is simply that I think I need to remind you. I think you need to remember. That's all that's being said there. I think you've forgotten, right? And, and what was the thing that was forgotten? Well, yeah, all of that list, but how about more simply that you've been forgiven already? past, present, and future, you've already been forgiven. Christ has cleansed you, right? He has forgotten that he was, past tense, cleansed from his old sins. You, you, your nature is gone. 
You don't belong to those things. Those things are not part of you. If you are in Christ, and let's just say this properly, we are in Christ. There's no way you're sitting here tonight if you're not in Christ. Come on. Uh, you know, your enemy would like to convince you of that while you've screwed up so many times. Probably you're not one of them. And he gets into this discussion in 10, and I'll just touch on it. I, I can't go into all of it, but, you know, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. And some people are like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm not. <laughs> no, it's the call that you need to become sure of, right? Because the election is eternal. Before the foundations of the, the world, if you're a child of God, you were elected before the foundations of the world, before you were ever born, before you were ever created. You belonged to Christ. So that's eternal. Right? What is it the thing you need to make sure of? It's the call. And so very often that's the thing we forget. No, seriously, remember the moment where you're like, enough is enough. I surrender. I'm doing it. I'm going to church. I'm going back. I'm walking with the Lord. You, 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 you heard something in your heart, in your mind, in your life that caused you to respond. You forgot that. And you drifted from that. And you neglected that. And all you got to do is remember. Recall. Right? The calling that was on your life. Recall. The calling that was upon your life. Respond to the Lord. Just to, again, my fifth closing for this evening. Um, you know, in Revelation there, right? That, uh, you know, you are lukewarm. And he says, <coughs> remember. Right? And repent. And then he says, repeat the works. Remember the calling. Repent of your sins. Repeat the works you did at first. It's, it's really that simple. You know, the grace of God saying, of course you're going to fail. Of course you're going to flounder. Here's Peter, right? I mean, he's classic in regard to the denial and the failure and the great bold claims and then the fall on his face. So, so here, this is the prime example. If you're sitting here right now thinking, yeah, this message is for like awesome Christians. <laughs> you know, not, not me. I'm a, I'm a lousy Christian. Guess what? We're all lousy Christians. And in what Peter is reiterating to us is that remember and return and restore and repent let christ work in your life amen amen so um we'll pick up with verse 10 next week why don't we stand and we'll pray together <coughs> or maybe we'll pick up with verse 1 next week <laughs> father we are again very grateful for your love and your grace and your work and your ministry in our lives help us to be men and women that follow you, Lord, that respond to you, that remember, that return, that restore, that repent, that repeat. Lord, so grateful for your grace. We ask that you would work in our hearts, our minds, and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.